What's up, MMA fans? It is Thursday, January 18th, and this is Rafael Garcia back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. And we're here this weekend, and I'm back with my um, tag team partner again, known as Schwan. I'm silent this week, Humes. How you been, man? You been kind of quiet this week. Yeah, just been uh, busy, had basketball tryouts for the kids, and then uh, had a had a a fighter get in touch with me and wanted me to do some scout work on a future opponent or a potential series of opponents. So that just took up a lot of time. Just been mm-hmm. always something to do. Well, that's very true. They're so very true. I understand, man. I know you've been. Um, I know you understand. Yeah, you tell them. You tell them. I'm sitting here at my desk now, just slouched down in the chair, wishing I could just lay on the couch and go to sleep. My cat is sitting here right in front of me, knocked out. I'm just yeah, like, oh, sleep's starting so, to be my new favorite hobby when I get a chance to do it. Yeah, man, who are you telling? Who are you telling there? So, let's excuse me about that. We got quite a bit to talk about um, this week, man. We have two big cards. We have um, UFC 220, and we have Bellator 192 to talk about. So let's go ahead and, and kind of jump right into it. But before we go there. Let's talk about some news from this week. So, first thing I wanted to talk about was um, the one and only King Dana White and his comments about uh, fighters promoting themselves and um, getting to the and stop asking for money fights. Now, this is something that we've kind of touched on every now and then. We've talked about it briefly. Uh, I, did you read the piece in um, Bloody Elbow this week? You there? Schwan. Uh, Schwan, can you hear me? Not sure. Schwan, you there? All right, well, let's see if we can get him fixed on that. But um, let's go ahead and jump into this 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 news piece about what I was just talking about with Dana White saying to UFC fighters that they need to build themselves into a star because basically it seems like they're telling them that they won't do it for him. So let's kind of look at that because this is, this is a controversial situation here, and it's kind of stupid in my opinion. Um, a bit to talk about here because it goes against everything that they're supposed to do as promoters because you know again this is a this it's not necessarily a sporting event this is this isn't a clear-cut sports event like a basketball game or football game or a soccer match or something along those lines this is sports entertainment and the entertainment aspect of that comes from the idea that these individuals are promoted to the fan base as stars. They're promoted in a way that makes the fans want to see what they have going on. Uh, Schwan, you're back. Can you turn me down on, on your end a little bit, please? Yeah. Turn me down just a bit. But um, we're talking about Dana White and his comments about telling fighters to build themselves into stars without and and to stop asking about money fights. Um, when I saw this headline, it didn't surprise me that Dana said it. And it didn't surprise me in any way, shape, or form, because it, it, it's just so unfortunate. And it's so it's just so unfortunate on so many different levels. But um, 
it's it's unfortunate because a he know like he knows this is not that's not the name of the game. He's been a fight promoter for decades now. He knows that there's a level of promotion that he's supposed to be doing for everyone. But unfortunately, clearly they're not. I mean, someone brought up a good uh, point last weekend when Paige Van Zandt was fighting, talking about you know the way she's promoted, and it's not necessarily bad that the UFC is promoting her in such a way. But what what is prohibiting them from promoting all of their young talent in such a fashion? Why can't they promote, you know, Jessica Rose Clark in in, in such a way? Why can't they promote uh, Cynthia Cavillo in such a in such a way? What is keeping them from promoting Fleece Herrick in such a way? Demetrius Johnson, Tyron Woodley. What is stopping them from promoting certain individuals? over others and it's almost unfortunate because fans don't understand that yes fighters can do more to build themselves into a star but they they will only get so big without the UFC's promotional power behind them what were some of your thoughts when you read read his comments um, towards some of the athletes on his roster well I'm kind of conflicted to be honest because part of the promoter's job is to actually promote the fighter you're supposed to give them as many opportunities as you can directly, not just through the fights and right before the fights and build-up shows and countdown shows, but you're supposed to spend your own money to develop a fan base, to get them out in front of people, to put them on maybe smaller uh, cards that, that aren't going to sell well or do well, but are going to start start the relationship between the fighter and the fans. That's what it is, basically. It's a relationship. I put you out there, you perform, I get to know your story, I get to see how you fight, I get to your personality through your fight and that helps people get involved and invested to where the, to the point where they're going to put their money down and speak with their dollars because people can get on twitter and they can comment on facebook but that's all free what really matters is the ratings when you fight the pay-per-view counts when you fight the tickets sold when you fight how much money are people putting down to specifically see you how, how strongly are people speaking out about seeing you specifically so the promoter's not doing their job and they're making it, they're kind of making it difficult for the fighter. So from that instance, I think the UFC should do more. But the fact of the matter is, in my opinion, the UFC's never really promoted anybody. They've never really, really promoted everybody. They've given somebody a little bit of a push. They've given somebody, they've opened a couple doors, but they haven't just, they just haven't put somebody on and turned them into a huge star. I don't know the huge star the UFC has created. Ronda Rousey had, had momentum coming before she got in the UFC. Conor McGregor had a whole country behind them before he came into the UFC. All the people who were stars kind of established their own brand. Uriah Faber is popular because you put a microphone in front of him at any time of day, camera, any time of day, he's going to speak in front of the microphone, stand in front of that camera, take every interview, take every opportunity to push his camp, to push his team, to push his brand. Same thing with Conor McGregor. Same thing with Ronda Rousey. So the people who become the biggest stars in the UFC, nine times out of ten are people who put in some kind of work or push themselves outside of just training and just fighting and just doing the bare minimum meeting obligation. I would argue that. Um, I would argue I, I would argue that because I feel like they've built Tito Ortiz. They built him into a massive star. Um, Chuck Liddell, they built him into a big star. Randy Couture, like they put the platform in place. But, but Randy Couture is not a real star, though. He, he's a MMA he, star. Mm, I, I'd argue that. How many... How many movies has he, how many how many how many movies has this guy been in? He's been in the two Expendables movies. He's been in I think 
two other Jason Statham movies. He has his own movie, uh, The Scorpion King. He's been in, and he's been acting in, in other platforms. But I mean, that's what I mean. It's like he's in the Jason Statham movie. I mean, the only reason, like, when Ronda Rousey has done appearances, it stands out. When Conor McGregor's in a movie, they were they were talks of having Conor McGregor under his own movie because they felt he had that kind of movement behind him. Like, Couture is he's famous to me, but he's not he's not super famous. I mean, he's not like a like a real even. I mean, he's just not a real star to me. Like, Conor McGregor's a star. Ronda Rousey's a star. Even Uriah Faber's a star. I mean, he's fighting. He was fighting at a weight class that wasn't getting any attention, and he was a bigger star than people who were in the UFC. More people knew Uriah Faber than people who were in the UFC. Kimbo Slice was an actual star. Mm, you know, I mean, I would I mean, argue. There's a couple of different things I would argue there. Um, yes, Ronda and Connor are, are the biggest stars in the industry in the last, what, 10 years, maybe, most. And I feel like, they're, like they've become such big stars because of the stars that were before them. Couture, Liddell. But who, but who was, but I would take that point, but who was, before Ron, who was before Ronda? Who was the big, super huge female star before Ronda? Who opened the door for Ronda? There weren't any, but that's what I'm saying. Like That platform that allowed her to become that way is because of what... Because imagine, the USC may not have been around if it wasn't for guys like Ortiz and Chuck. So if they didn't do what they didn't do, would have done, she may not have even been fighting. But that, but that's the difference between being a pioneer and being a star. It's like, like if you want to go into like a political thing or a racial thing, Martin Luther King was the star of this movement. There were people who made sacrifices before him. There's people who started movements before him. He became the star. He wasn't the one who started it. He was the one who grew up and became the big, powerful voice and the people that the guy that people remembered. It, that's the way it is in, in, throughout history. There's like one soldier who, who's celebrated. How many 42, 3,000, 30,000 soldiers sacrificed their lives too? They're not going to get celebrated. They set the table for that dude, but that dude rose above. It's the same thing with fighters. You can have a bunch of people who who open the doors, who who set the table, but even among those people, they're not. They weren't stars. They just set the table. That doesn't mean they were stars. Tito Ortiz was probably the first star, and and Tito did a lot of his own self promotion with his T-shirts, with his uh -huh. fight, and he like he set the table. He did these things, and a lot of these people they don't want to do the extra work. That's why I I don't I agree with Dana because the UFC could do more, but the UFC's never really done a whole lot for people. I mean, they just really haven't. They're just like a stage. It's like I put on, put you on a stage, and I put this artist on there. They bomb, and the artist is like, "Well, you didn't put enough lighting. The sound was messed up. Blah blah blah." I put another artist on the stage with the same stage. They blow up, and then, you know, well, you you pushed them. You gave more opportunities. No, they were on the stage. People connected, so I kept putting them on the stage. You you had your chance on the stage. I'm not saying they couldn't do more, but I still say not everybody's meant to be a superstar. And even the people who say they want to be one. They're not always willing to do the work necessary. Ronda Rousey said it. She's like, everybody wants my fame and my, my money, but do they want to do 35 interviews a day? Do they want to fly across country in the middle of a camp and they have to come back and finish the camp after you had to do an interview or go on a Good Morning America? They don't want to do that kind of stuff. They just want to be, they think that just being the best is enough, and it's never been enough. It has never been enough to be a star. Peyton Manning was not the best for a long time. He was one of the biggest stars in the NFL. Other people have not been one of the best in NBA. They were stars before they were champions. There's there's a lot of other stuff that goes with it, and some of these people aren't doing their fair share of work, in my opinion. I mean, you so, can um, the UFC, but what are you doing for yourself? I'd, I I would argue this, and the reason why I, I would argue this is because I look at someone like a Paige Van Zant, for example. Paige Van Zant is what she's one two. She's three and three since joining the UFC in 2014. Okay, and those six fights 
Yeah, six fights. Let's see something real quick. I'm gonna ask. I don't believe she's ever in those six fights. She hasn't been on the main card once. And what I mean by main card, I mean like you know, like like the top five fights. That's promotion right there. Prime placement on a card where you know you're going to get massive amounts of exposure. I mean, hell, she's headlined one, two. She's headlined and two two events on Fox and co it co and co mained another one. We can name we can look at the, the rankings right now and we can look at how many fighters have never even been in that situation. Yeah, I, I won't even I can't even argue with that, but it's kinda of like Tyron Woodley says I didn't get a push. How many you've been a co main event, you're a champion. You've had platforms. Why why aren't you sticking with the why why haven't you stuck? There's certain segments of populations to support fighters. In boxing, everybody knows the Mexican fighters always they, the fans support their fighters. They go all over. If you get the Mexican fans behind you, they're going to support you. They, it's just the way it works. And in the UFC, they don't have many certain certain ethnicities, certain groups. They don't back their guy. If Tyron Woodley had every had the majority of black people backing him like Mayweather does, maybe Tyron Woodley could have some leverage. But he doesn't have any leverage. He doesn't appeal to his own group. You don't appeal to your own. You have to come to them with something. You can't just be like, well, you should push me, blah, blah, blah. What, what do you have? Well, to do? I would argue that, and, and this is a couple of times. Michael be... about this too. McGregor already had a big movement behind him before he became baby. UFC came after him because he also had a movement. It wasn't just Correct. he's a good fighter. Correct. He had a movement. But he's not the only individual that has, that has had such a movement. Like, for example, imagine how big of a star Khabib Nurmagomedov would be a part of it is because he, he, he isn't as active but if you want to look at just population base look at the millions of millions of people that they could be attracting to the sport now if Khabib was pushed in the same way that Connor was he, granted now Connor is a like you cannot say enough how great he is on the mic. The man, when the camera or a microphone is put in front of him, he does what he needs to do to get over. That is an intangible that very few people have ever been able to replicate. But there is still the opportunity that is presented, that is provided for him, that the UFC gives, and and they've admitted to that. That opportunity, they play a part in providing the opportunity to him. For example, Demetrius Johnson. Demetrius Johnson has such a wide swath of attraction across the video game industry. Why hasn't the UFC tapped into that in any way, shape, or form? They've put out how many UFC? Three three UFC games on the current generation of video gaming system. PlayStation has sold more PlayStation 4s than any video game console that's ever been sold in the history of the industry. Why hasn't the UFC done something with Demetrius Johnson and PlayStation in some shape or form? You got me. I assume they don't want to have to, like, the, like I said before, the UFC doesn't, they don't really invest a whole lot in their guys. They kind of give you a platform, they let you run. They might, put, they might give you a prime placement, but after that, you have, you have to feel, you have to sell. They have to see some kind of return on it. I mean, that's, that's the main thing I could talk about, because you could say you could invest in the video game community, but if the video game community came out and was putting their money down and always on social media saying, well, you want Demetrius Johnson, I, I bought this pay-per-view, and they could show so many receipts, we bought this, we paid for this, or they, they 25,000 of them came out to every show he had, he headlined, and they could track that, and it was more obvious and upfront and in their face, 
you'd be surprised how much difference that would make. It's like when Floyd comes out, a certain segment of people who wouldn't go to fight come out to fight to see Floyd. A certain segment of people used to come out to see Ricky Hatton. A certain segment of people come out to see Ronda, but they won't come out to see anybody else. They'll come out to see Connor, they won't see anybody else. And I'm not saying they shouldn't use this group as a resource. They should. But the UFC is lazy in how they market people. They want the easy market. That's why they go. They support their people. What person do I think appeals to the broadest scope of people? That's who I'm going to put my money into. I'm not going to put my money into somebody who may be a hit or may be a miss until they until it's right in front of their face. Demetrius Johnson gets 8,000 people who are gamers to come to the who come to the show and then promote the show on their own and do all that kind of stuff. The UFC will get onto it because then it's like, okay, well he's already done the work. Now let's just give him some money so we can do more work for us. They're not trying to, to, to put all the money in and, and finance everything. They figure we've given you a platform, that's enough. That's really how they think. That's how they make their money because they don't put a lot of money into marketing and promoting. They just let whoever's going to be a star be a star, who they think is going to be a star, give them a, give them a head start, and let it go from there. Otherwise, they don't, they don't and I'm not, promote anybody. They, and they I'm not really don't. Disagreeing, disagreeing with um, you at all with that. It's just that... You don't see them do that same thing with other people. Tyron Woodley, under his own volition, under his own action, found his way into an into a multiple award-winning movie on his own power. UFC never mentioned it, not in any shape or form. That could have been a segue to them breaking into the African American demographic through having a UFC champion in a movie that was targeted towards one of the most historical groups within that hip-hop demographic never mentioned it yeah but see it's it's kind of like everything else in the world like if i say i have this great business venture nobody wants all of my friends don't want to join in until they well who do you got backing you how much money have you made already everybody wants to know if i just say put all your money into this venture like i'm a really good writer just put your money into me well have you made any money who, who's your client who are you working with oh i don't i don't have any of that just put your money in. people are going to be like no but then once I start getting money, if I get a contract with ESPN, if I'm working with Fox Network, if I'm all of a sudden working with such and such fighter, then all of a sudden everybody wants to like, oh, well, you know what, maybe can, can we get on the deal? That's how almost everybody operates. How many people actually go out on just faith and give, being fair and give everybody a shot? You know, you, you see where I'm coming from? Like, people don't want to waste their money in their own personal lives, but they're telling the UFC, you know, just put your money to everybody. Represent everybody. Push everybody. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's not that. It's it's push more people instead of just Ronda, just Connor, just Paige, just Sage, just um. Hell, even like, I even look at like like Stipe for for example. Stipe's not even getting the same type of push that Francis Ngannou is getting, and here it is. Stipe has dominated as a heavyweight champion to this point in time. And it's almost like from a marketing standpoint, like marketing is what I do on a nine to five basis. What opera, how are they putting this man in front of the public in a way that allows him to become that star? You have a guy who's a firefighter for a nine to five. That is a, a that is a basis of an American hero there. Yes, he has a foreign sounding name, but everyone needs to understand that this man is an American. Um, but does, what does are they doing? Money or does he want to, Does he want to be a star? Because being a star requires a lot of requires you talk a lot. It requires you to go out and, and, and say certain things, do certain things. Most certain star, most stars have a charisma about them. They have a an image, a lifestyle that people want to attach to. Um, Stephen Mears is kind of like a blue collar, straightforward dude. Most people don't dream of being a blue collar, straightforward dude. They dream of being a Ric Flair. They dream of being a Conor McGregor or a Floyd Mayweather. People don't pick them because they're nice people. They see the lifestyle and the things they have, 
and they want those things too. Andre Ward is a great guy. He loves his wife. He's a great parent. And I mean, I, I don't want Andre Ward's life. I already have Andre Ward's life. I have a great family. I, I have a great love of my life. I, I don't need Andre Ward's life. I already have it. I just don't have his money. I, I, can do, I can do Andre Ward. I can't fly wherever I want like Floyd Mayweather. I can't get my kids wherever they want like Floyd Mayweather. I can't take care of my family and, and live this life and live this flamboyancy like Floyd Mayweather. That's the fantasy that people want to reach out and experience. The, the common blue collar thing, that's, you know, I'm just like you. Well, nobody wants, to, nobody wants to see movies about regular people. Nobody wants to listen to songs about regular people. People don't relate to fighters who are the closest to the, their character. They want people who do exceptional things and have an exceptional story and have an exceptional appeal. It, it's just what stands out. I mean, if that's the case, any fighter we have would be a star because people relate to them. But it's not just being relatable. It's having something that people aspire to. And these guys don't have anything that people aspire to. Not in the way they come across. It's basically, it's basically just well, their fighting skills. And I'm going to say once again, being the best, is, being famous or being a star has never been connected with being the very best. The very best is not always the biggest star. I've never seen that in any, any in acting it's not. The best actor is not the biggest star. Singing, the best technical singer is not the best biggest star. Anything. It's always a combination of talent and charisma and how much you're willing to put yourself out there to, to reap the benefits. Are you willing, willing to sacrifice the training camp? When Sipe was having his contract issues, was he out there promoting himself? Was he out there promoting the UFC? Was he traveling on his own dime, creating, creating a buzz? Or was he just sitting at home saying, I'm just gonna keep training and do what I normally do? Because doing what you normally do isn't gonna sell. It's not gonna, it's not gonna, it doesn't expand your brand. It doesn't expand the UFC's brand. Like, I put it this way, the UFC has done more for Stipe than Stipe has done for the UFC as far as making money. The UFC makes money with or without him. He does not make money with or without the UFC. His option, he wouldn't be who he is without them. But that's true for anyone. Oh, go ahead. Like, that, that's true for anyone. If if the UFC didn't talk about Ronda the way they did when they brought her in, she would not be that the, the multi-million dollar um, personality that she is today. Period. Yeah, it, it's true, but since she since it took off with her and she got to the point where she was independently generating her own money, whatever, no matter who you put her up against, no matter what card you put her on, she's selling out millions. She's bringing in all this attention. She got to the point where the UFC is like, well, we need her because regardless of what situation we put her in, she's selling. Like, if you're asking for a money fight, that means you need someone's help to sell and get you over. Ronda could sell with anybody. You could put her in with um, Lauren Murphy and it still do half a million buys. That's because of the position they put her in. Her, her very first fight in the UFC, she was a main event of a pay-per-view. Well, she, she did come from another division and beat the, the previously most popular person in the world in her, in her division. You think that, that she was more popular than, you think Misha Tate was more popular than Cyborg was? I'd argue that. At, at, at that point, I think, I think, I think Cyborg had, a, had an appeal, but I think Misha had a more of a, Misha, I think Misha's popularity was comparable. I, I really do. Comparable, yes, but I think that Cyborg was a bigger was was a bigger star of the two. And when she came in, she didn't even get get, get a main event. She didn't even get a co-main event slot. They don't think they don't think she has that. She doesn't have that potential. I mean, plain and simple. But she's proven them wrong. Because... somebody to fight. If you're the star, you're the champion, and you're the best, and you're demanding someone else who's beneath you hasn't accomplished what you've accomplished to fight, you're conceding the fact that you need that person. And, and Cyborg would have taken a Misha Tate fight because Misha would bring more eyes to her. Cyborg wanted the Ronda fight because Ronda was getting so many eyes for her. Aldo was a long-standing champ. And he's, he's, he's calling for Conor. Why is he calling for Conor? You're the champion. Like, like Max Holloway said, I don't call for anybody. 
They call for me. I take whoever comes. I don't. I don't need anybody. I, I'm. I'm the star. I'm the focus of it. But all these guys act differently. They say it doesn't matter, but then they chase the money. They don't chase the biggest challenge. They chase the person with the biggest paycheck. So even though they're saying that we should all get the same push, you've clearly understood that certain people have more of an appeal. Certain people have more hype, and you want that person. You don't want the best person in the division. You want the person who's gonna who's gonna bring those eyes and get you that paycheck. It, it's not really about. It, it's not be about being the best anymore. It's about getting the best money. And the worst part about it is all these guys, if they were in that position and they were getting pushed, they wouldn't be looking out for anybody else. They're complaining because they're not getting pushed. They're not complaining because they're worried about other fighters and it's not fair and, we're, and they're getting ripped off and we all deserve it. They just care about themselves. So it, it seems like it's, you know, Dana's being rude and Dana's being unfair, but the fact of the matter is he's looking after his promotion and himself the same way the fighters want to look after themselves. They're getting mad because it's not benefiting them. He's get, and Dana's like, stop asking for money, make yourselves into stars so we can help us out. The more you help us out, the more we can eventually help you out. But if you're just gonna try and write off the work of somebody else or our work, I don't have any, any interest in you. Make yourself into a money fight, and then you can have a conversation with me. But don't well, face a money fight and then say, well, Dana, we need to renegotiate things. Renegotiate things for what? You didn't sell that fight. I'm going to use what you just said as a way to segue into the next conversation point because I disagree. You said that the the fighters need the UFC and the UFC doesn't need the fighters. I disagree with that. And 2017 numbers show that because 2017, they're at, what is it, almost a 60% clip across the board where ratings and pay-per-views have dropped off. Now, I think that this correlates directly into the fact that they don't have the stars that people want to see. Part of that reason is because they have not done a good enough job building people or promoting people in a way that makes fans want to see them. Francis Ngannou, this weekend, people are excited about this fight because he's been properly, yes, he's gone in there and he's performed, but he's also gone in there and he's been properly promoted at the same time. People excited to see him this year and, and see him when he, when he fights on Saturday. 2017 numbers show that they have not been able to do that with anyone else. And I think part of that is because they have not put the same type of promotional effort behind other fighters. And it's showing in these numbers. I think that's, that, that's a part of the issue, along with the fact that they have so many events going on that people are picking and choosing what they can and cannot see. But the fact that there are so many fights that are just kind of like ho-hum, shows that there's a lack of star power within the organization across the board. Because when two fighters leave, when you have Ronda and, and Connor both not fight for a year, and your numbers drop off by 60 to 70%, that's telling. No, you know what? I would agree. I would agree with that. But it's like everybody's people are complaining about the leverage Connor's got and people are complaining about the leverage other people got. And it's like y'all are getting your shots. There's no like there's no Connor. Why aren't you selling? What's Tony Ferguson's reason for not selling? What's Demetri John? He ain't even got Connor to be compared to now. What, what's the Cyborg's reason? She ain't got, Ronda's not in her way. So, so what's the reason now? Amanda Nunes, they don't push me. I don't have enough opportunities. Okay, Ronda's not there. Now what's your excuse? Because well, Ronda, Ronda set up a lot of stuff on her own. Why aren't you setting up your interviews? Why aren't you going to the gay and lesbian magazines and getting all your press and getting your published and getting them behind you and getting, getting that whole segment behind you? You were champion. You're speaking out for them. Well, where, where is that happening? I'm not saying the UFC has not dropped the ball. I'm just saying people overestimate how much the UFC can do. They can make you bigger, but it, to me, if you're not a star, 
you're just not a star. Not everybody can be a star. It's just a simple fact that not everybody can be the best, not everybody can be the smartest, not everybody can be successful, not everybody can be a star. And some fighters have openly said, I'm not willing to do these things if that's what it takes. So if you're not willing to do these things, what do you blame the UFC for? Because the UFC gets blamed for two things. One, when someone doesn't get pushed and doesn't become a star, and they get, a, they get blamed for rushing prospects and ruining them, and then taking away their chance to be a star. So they often get the blame for everything, but nobody ever looks at the fighters and say, what could that fighter have done more? You know, if all you want to do is train and get your stuff ready and, and fight and win, cool. But you might hit, you might not. If you want to be a star, it's going to require you to do something more than just your job and doing your job very well. That's the same thing in any business. For you to be the get a promotion move up, it's not just you can do your job. It's got to be something else. Getting a job, you have to do more than just be qualified. It, it, it just takes more, and I don't see enough fighters. I don't know enough fighters who are willing to make that sacrifice. I'm not saying the UFC shouldn't do more. I'm not saying they're not extremely lazy, but they give people opportunities. It's just what do people do with the opportunities they are given? Mm, I, I would argue that um, just because this is just some of the examples that I see when I see people like uh, Chris Cyborg before fighting Holly Holm doing a teddy bear drive for a local hospital and you don't even see a bit of it. You don't see that on the UFC website. You don't see it on UFC social media. You don't see a press release about it from the UFC. You don't see anything like that. But you have to you, if you don't follow cyborg on instagram or twitter you would have had no no idea that she does that here it is you have one of your champions doing something of her own free will out of her own pocket at her own time to support sick children and i mean all you gotta do is show up with a camera actually true. you don't even have to do that anymore all you have to do is have your social media manager repost her instagram post that's all you gotta do well let me ask you a question Let's say UFC gets behind all these people, and let's say they just give them a shot. When would it? When would it be enough? Okay, I gave you three headlining shots. You won your fights. I pushed you to everybody, but people still don't want to see you fight. Well, then well, you didn't put as much money. You know, like I just want to know when would it be enough? Because Connor didn't need much. He didn't need much uh-huh. to get going. Correct, correct. But I think so, you. I think you look at it I mean, based on. Think, oh, I'm sorry. Just think about this. Tyron Woodley. He's not popular. Whatever. They're against me. Mm-hmm. You had two main event fights against Stephen Thompson. And I know it's hard to knock him out. I know you can't win every fight like that. But Connor and his biggest spots against Hall of Famer Eddie Alvarez, Hall of Famer and previously unbeaten featherweight kingpin Aldo, he took care of business. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying I could do it. I'm not saying anybody else could do it. But on the biggest stage, he made his biggest, most important performances. And that helped add on to him. That helped leverage him into the position he's in. Ooh, I think you're saying a couple different things there because, like, first when you said when is enough enough, I think if you look at, I think you base it off of where guys are ranked because guys who are ranked high enough, that means that they've been performing in the cage well enough to get that type of promotion. You tie it back to the same way they, they tie rankings back to Reebok sponsorship money. You can tie it back to marketing, marketing dollars as well. When you budget out your marketing, you say, okay, we have... X amount of but X amount of marketing dollars, and we're going to put it behind these fighters ranked in these positions because we know that these are the individuals who have shown us they will consistently perform in the uh, cage. If I look at lightweight, and I know that um, Francisco Trinaldo doesn't have the same type of fighting size as Justin Gaethje, I'm not going to put the money behind uh, Trinaldo, who's ranked at 12, instead of putting it behind. Gaethje, who's ranked that fifth, knowing what type of fights he's going to go out there and do. 
Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all part of it. it to me, it's this never it's never an open shut case. But people try to make it into a. I, I never say it's always a fighter. I say I feel the fighters could do more. I feel the UFC could do more. People tend to say it's all the UFC. I'm just never gonna agree with that because there's some guys. Too, there's people who've had who haven't been pushed either, and they turn themselves into stars. How did they do it? Why were they able to do it when you weren't able to? How was Uriah A. Faber able to turn himself into a star on a third-rate TV channel in a second-tier organization? How did he establish a brand and build his star? When, back when he didn't have social media and all that stuff to lean on, how did he turn himself into a star? How did Kimbo Slice turn himself into a star? Well, he was a, he was a caricature. So what? You said you want the money. You said you want the fame. But now you want to do it a certain kind of way? Okay, you can try it your way, but your way may not get you what you want. And some of the, and the, the UFC, their promotions is not great, their videos are not great, their commercials and promos aren't great, but some of the stuff these fighters say, you, you, you can't even argue it. Well, it's a big fight for you, Demetrius. No, it's another day at the office. So it's another day at the office, but you want me to act like it's a big deal? You just told me it's another I mean, day that is also that part of it, too. That is a big part of it, too, because I'm... Steeping me, okay, I don't, you know, he's... He's a very, he's a great guy. He has a great sort of vibe, but does he really ever talk and, and, and sell things? Does he really ever give the catchphrase, well, I shouldn't have to? I know you shouldn't have to, just like certain people shouldn't have to be able to take to certain neighborhoods to be safe. It's just the world we live in, and you have to learn how to navigate it until something changes. You, you just can't, you, you just can't tell me, I know the rules and, and it's not fair. Life's not fair. The world's not fair. What are you going to do about it? The chances of Sleepy Miyoko being a champion was very slim. That wasn't fair, but he fought his way through it and got to the point he's at. Now, all of a sudden, you're like, well, they some imagine if Stipe said, well, somebody else would do the work for me. You wouldn't be champion. There's just no way of getting around it. And even if you do all the work and do everything right, there's no guarantee you'll be a champion in, a, in an organization. There's no, there's no guarantee you'll be a star. So I don't understand why people are so angry when the fact of the matter is not everybody's going to win. And the only reason they're mad is because they are not currently winning. Yeah, well, you deserve more credit. Well, lots of people deserve it. Roxanne Mataferi deserves more. She's been in there for 14 years, 20-something years. She deserves to be a star over anybody else. Before we get to Jesse Clark, let's go talk to Roxanne Mataferi. Let's go talk to Barb Honchak. Let's talk to Misha Tate, who is still underrated. Let's talk to Julie Kedzie, who is still underrated. Before we start getting to all the recent people, why don't we make sure the other people who, who, like you said, set the table, they're bigger stars. But they don't care about them. They care about themselves right now. They don't care about the people coming up. They care about themselves. So it's like, I, I have a hard time feeling sympathetic for people who, who really have no concern past themselves. The UFC only cares about themselves, the fighters only care about themselves, but you want a stance to be invested in that. It, it, it kind of strikes hollow with me. It, it doesn't strike a nerve with me because it seems very selfish. And I, I understand it's selfish for a reason, but don't try and sell me on being fair and being everybody should get their chance when you don't really care. You care about you getting a chance, you just can't say that. You have to say everybody should get pushed. You don't really care about them. Jesse Clark doesn't care about Jessica I. Jessica I doesn't really care about Paige Van Zandt. Except Paige Van Zandt gets a bigger paycheck. They don't really care. Why are they asking? Oh, I mean, she's already made it clear that 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 they they don't. But um, yeah, I mean, that's a hell of a conversation there. So let's kind of let's. There's another news topic I wanted to talk about before we jump into looking at the at the fights for this week. They passed a lie detector test this week. Do you care? I mean, because I really. I mean, I guess it's kind of interesting. It's interesting that they're going through such... I care about how far they're willing to go to prove that he didn't do this on purpose. I don't remember them ever doing this for the smaller fighters or the lesser-named fighters or the lesser-accomplished fighters or the people who haven't even been in the UFC yet who get banned for two years. 
Like, why are we going through all this trouble for John Jones? That's the biggest thing that makes me perks up my ears and makes me care about this because it's, it's clearly an unfair approach they're trying to use, and it seems like they're trying to gear him around to be reinstated again. So, um, if if he gets the full sentence, I think he gets slapped with uh, four years. I think it's four years. Yeah. Do you think um, he'll get those all? Get those full four years. I don't think so. I mean, if they did, they'd ha- if somehow he got four years, I'd have to imagine somehow he gets out of that contract. And the, the USC lets him go of that contract because in four years, he's worth nothing to them. And his whole career is on. I mean, he doesn't make money as a public speaker. He's a fighter for a reason. And that's his only form of making money. So I don't see, I don't, I don't see him not fighting. I might, he might not fight in the U- U.S., but if he's on that for four years, he could fight overseas and I think that he would yeah I mean um, go ahead no 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 no. go ahead sir go ahead well it just seems like they're trying to figure out a way to get him back in and and somehow say that he was a victim and it was an accident and that's going to be why he gets gets an abbreviated sentence even though people other people were never given that benefit of the doubt yeah I mean um I I kind of really care because the thing about uh these lie detector tests is that they're, I mean, there's a reason why that they're not allowed in, in the court of law to begin with. Roy Moore said he wanted to take a lie, uh, lie, lie detector test and nobody would have believed anything that would have came out from it. So why are we even, I mean, why are we kind of even entertaining this conversation? I guess because it's surrounding John Jones and yeah, he's making, trying to make so much of an effort to prove his innocence. And I think it's not necessarily to prove his innocence. I think he's trying to, I think they were talking about this on the MMA earlier today when I was listening, but they're trying to make it a point to do as much as they possibly can to hope that he doesn't get in as much trouble as um, possible. So we'll see what happens because I, I, A, I don't think he's going to get the full four-year sentence, but B, I do think he is going to get some type of uh, suspension for this uh, whole situation. Real quick, do you, we had a Jason Adams, and he was an MMA manager, and we asked him kind of what, how he would handle the situation. And if I recall, he said something about doing things that would get the public on your side, maybe kind of sway public opinion. Do you think he's possibly doing this, you know, so we can put that doubt in fans' minds who want to believe in him, so that maybe it put put some doubt or put some pressure on the UFC to maybe give an abbreviated sentence or or somehow to reroute things because I mean you know if you're a big enough fighter or you're or a draw they will make exceptions for you so if he can get the public maybe on his side believing that he he was a victim in all this then it might be able to create pressure and opportunity for him to get his his license back sooner than later yeah I'm not going to disagree with you there on that um so let's kind of segue into some fight previews for this week man we got two big cards first and foremost we have UFC 220, where we have Stipe Miocic's first defending his heavyweight title, looking to tie the record, I think, of three title defenses. I think Brock Lesnar holds the record right now. Um, and he's facing heavy hitter Francis Ngannou. Um, I want to talk about this from a technical and fight. Can you turn me down a little bit on, on your end, please? But I want to talk about this from a technical and you know fight standpoint, as always. But I also want to talk about this budding conversation about Ngannou's comments earlier this earlier today, which kind of caused a little bit of controversy. So first and foremost, let's look at this from a technical standpoint, man. Do your thing. Break it down. Let, let us know what you see. 
so far, the biggest thing, it's hard, hard like, it's kind of like the same thing with the Overeem fight. It's hard to really get a read on what Nganu is about and what he can really do because you've never really for seen him forced to go to a plan, go from plan A to plan B or plan C or plan D. Whatever plan A is, it's always worked. And he's never had to be pushed or really made to be uncomfortable in the majority of his fights. The only thing we know about him is he's a great athlete, he's explosive, he's an excellent counterpuncher, he's a natural fighter, and he's got great power. We don't really know how his chin holds up. We don't really know how his cardio holds up. We don't know about his, his, his wrestling. I mean, he's defended takedowns, but he's never had to defend a series of takedowns or somebody chaining takedowns. We don't know how his, how his defense and his footwork is under duress. We don't know how he is off his back. We don't know how he is off the top. We, there's a million questions we have about Francis Ngannou that won't be answered. That The first chance we're going to have to have them answered is on Saturday night when he feeds the Stipe. Um, Stipe is more of a known quantity. He's a tough, smart, educated, established fighter who's known for his heart, his durability, his boxing skills and his wrestling is really the hallmark of his overall game. He's a very good athlete. I, I don't know if he's elite, but he's a very good athlete. He's a very good all-round fighter. And in my mind, in my mind, I think the best option for him in winning this fight is for him to use really deliberate pressure and try to get Nganu to lead. Nganu has not had to lead in any fight. People either come out and try to bum rush him or they try to hit him with a bomb and he draws out certain strikes and he counters. He counters at a very technical and precise manner. And when he's got such power that when he touches people, people go away. So I'm thinking the best thing Stipe can do is making Ganu lead. Making Ganu show you something, either through pressure or through feint or attacking him at range and forcing him to kind of react and give you, give you an opening that you can take advantage of. Because as it stands right now, I don't think Stipe is a better athlete. As far as punch for punch, I don't know that Stipe hits as hard as, as Ngannou does. And as good as Stipe is and as experienced as he is, the fact of the matter is his defense isn't always top notch. Almost every fight he's faced, whether it's a top end striker, an average athlete, or a great athlete, he's gotten hit, he's gotten hit clean, he's gotten hit repeatedly. I don't know that he wants to take too many clean, hard shots from Ngannou. I'm not saying that he can't take them, but I've seen him dropped, I've seen him backed off, and I've seen him rocked by less by guys who seem to be lesser strikers than Francis Ngannou. So for Stipe, he's got to play. He's got the same thing I told Overeem. You have to fight like a veteran. Show some composure. Show some discipline. Show some patience, and and make and take the youngster out of his spot. Make figure out what his timing is, figure out what his reading is, and make him do things that he doesn't want to do. And namely, that's make him leave. Make him give you something and then counter him. Throw something out to create, create an opportunity for him to counter and then counter his counter. It's like you have to be a veteran. You have to show him all the tricks. You have to show him all the experience and all the savvy. And you can't get caught up in a matter of ego. You can't get caught up in a matter of the moment. You can't be going out there to teach him a lesson. You have to go out there to win by any means necessary. And I would think that's the best approach for Stipe. And I would, I'm honestly going to go with Stipe because to me, as I've said many times, experience matters. And if you have a guy with his kind of experience, it's just, it's just a matter of time before he can figure out something that's going to force Ngannou to do things that he doesn't want to do or force Ngannou to show us what's in his bag of tricks. Like, even if he has these skills, he's never had to use them in a real fight under duress. 
So we don't know how well he is good at leading, how well he is at counter-wrestling repeatedly, how good he is off his back. Make him have to use those skills. His plan A is his plan A for a reason. Make him have to go to plan B or plan C. And once you get him there, that's when you can start taking over the fight and imposing your will on him. Excuse me. Um, do you think... What do you think about Stipe's strategy here? Do you think he will be really aggressive from the start, or do you think he will look to potentially use his wrestling to get this fight down to the ground early? I think anything is going to be really controlled pressure. I think it's going to be some aggression, but it's not going to be wild. It's not going to be... It's not going to be big spots of aggression. He's going to put steady. He's going to put steady pressure on him, and kind of work his range and his distance, and making Ganu feel like, making Ganu feel like a counter's there when it's not. Give him something to bite on so that he can get the opening he wants. Because hand speed for hand speed, step for step, Stipe isn't in Ganu's league from what I've seen. But if he can draw him out with a feint, if he can get him to bite on something on the footwork, pressure him with his footwork and create those opportunities, then he can score. I can't see Stipe trying to force a firefight. I mean, he has confidence in his chin and his power, but why would you give somebody their best shot at winning? And the best shot for Ngannou to win is for Stipe to go out there like everybody else does and to swing wild or try to go right after Ngannou and walk into his power. Because Ngannou, even though he, has, he hasn't shown a, wit, a bunch of skills, we do know he is an excellent, patient, and very technical counterpuncher. He'll walk you into shots. He'll fake this, and when you throw your counter, he'll counter that counter with a variety of shots, uppercuts, crosses, hooks, jabs, uh, shifting right hand. He, he can do it all. So you have, to, you have to make him think, and you have to layer your attacks to draw out things, to give him that sense of comfort, to give him that sense of confidence, and then you make him pay. But you don't get wild. You don't walk right in. You don't fight dumb. Those things are, are things you do when you're either overly confident or you're at a huge technical and physical advantage. I don't believe Stipe is overconfident, and I don't believe technically, especially on the defensive end, that he's at such an advantage where he can afford to take those sort of risks, especially early. I think he needs to put pressure on him and draw it out and then slowly take him apart, kind of walk him down a little bit. Interesting there. So what needs to happen for... Um, for... Ngannou to win here. Do you think that he, he needs Stipe to be uber aggressive to catch him and knock him out? Or can he win a five-round fight here? I would tend to believe he'd have he'd he'd have to keep he'd have to catch Stipe um being too aggressive. Not even saying that he'd have to get wild. He'd have to catch Stipe being being aggressive and probably fairly early. I I don't the, the biggest part about Ngannou is we don't know what he's like past the third round. We don't know what he's like if he has, if he has to fight a hard round. He's never had to. People are so fearful of get, getting hit by his power, they essentially just load up and throw shots. It's not hard to defend loaded up strikes. It's not hard to counter loaded up strikes. And if you have guys who, are, who feel like they can't clinch with you or wrestle with you, then he's really only having to defend one aspect of mixed martial arts. He hasn't even been in a mixed martial arts fight because guys haven't put him under enough pressure where he's had to consider the whole the whole realm of skills that you have to consider in a mixed martial arts fight. So I have to say that it'd have to be early because early is Stipe historically has gotten caught early in fights. He did it against Overeem. He got caught by Verdum early. He's, he usually gets caught early. It's just he makes an adjustment after he gets caught. He's tough enough to get, to get back up and make an adjustment. The best thing for 
thing Ngannou mm -hmm. would do is to blow him out early. First round, second round, catch him, put him away. Because if the fight goes longer and longer, that's when that experience comes into factor. When the fight goes longer and longer, that's when the conditioning, the seasoning, the mental toughness, and the physical durability come into, come into question. And right now, we have no idea what Ngana would do. We, we know Stipe gets stronger round after round. We've seen him take big shots from first round to last round. We have no idea what Ngana would do past, what, three minutes of the first round? We, we really don't. So I, I have to assume that if he doesn't get if he doesn't get Stipey early, that he doesn't get Stipey at all. How long do you think this fight is gonna go? Um. Uh, the hardest part about this, I just don't know what Ngannou can take. Um, I'll, I'll say, I, I really, you know, to be honest, I really don't know. I don't, I don't know what happens when Ngannou really has to catch a really hot shot, a really good shot. I, I have no idea. I'm gonna say that Stipe wins it between rounds three or four, but I mean, it, it's just as likely Stipe could knock him out in the first two as that Ngannou could knock Stipe out in the first two. I don't think it's likely that that happens, but you're talking two of the biggest hitters, and one guy, we know he has a chin, but he tends to get hit a little early. Another guy, we have no idea what he does when anybody with any real power puts a fist in his face. Good, good, good breakdown there. So let's talk about what occurred earlier today when... Uh, not Steve, excuse me. And Ganu opened up about his reaction to um, Donald Trump's comments from last week. If you've been living under a rock, which I'm sure no one has, um, Donald Trump made some inflammatory comments, supposedly made some inflammatory comments about countries such as Haiti, some African countries, I believe El Salvador was another one as well because they were talking about immigration and those countries were supposedly called shithole countries. So Ariel Hawani asked Nganu about that statement today and Nganu basically said it was shameful. He didn't say anything like, he didn't say anything derogatory about Donald Trump, but he basically talked about it in a way because he's he's also an immigrant from one of those from one of those African countries and he talked about it like what that meant and what that meant because how people how immigrants look at America as like a place of hope and how it was disheartening hearing those comments from the president of the United States um, immediately there was backlash stick to sports nobody cares what you want to say Why'd you leave Africa? I hope you get knocked out, et cetera, et cetera. The MMA fan base basically immediately jumped on that bandwagon. And this is something I've been saying for weeks. Ever since, you know, Ngannou started kind of rising up to fame and he started becoming that individual where into post-fight press conferences with his um, African garb on. I was like, you can talk, people could talk about how great of an athlete he is. Everyone loves him, et cetera, et cetera. And so he says something that pisses somebody off. Did you hear his comments uh, today? Did you read them? Yeah, I, I heard about it. I saw a little bit of the backlash and, you know, it's like that was predictable. I mean, I, it, in the climate we have nowadays, if you say, and that's, it goes for any athlete, once you start talking about what, what you feel about something politically or your stance on something, you're just opening that door for people to kind of express their displeasure with you and, and the feel that you're not qualified to speak on those things. So I, I wasn't shocked at all. I, I kind of feel bad for Nganu. I feel, it's surprising as it may sound, I feel bad for Stipe too, because it's, the same, it's kind of the situation that came up with Woodley and Thompson. Like, you know, when Woodley was saying there's a racial component to it, 
as the other yeah. fighter who's not connected to it, now you're in this position. Like, are people cheering for me because they like me? Or there's, is there really a racial issue here? And if that's the case, like, if you're the non-minority, you just got put into the middle of a situation that there's really no way for you to win. You can't comment. You can't say anything. And, you know, it, it's a very uncomfortable situation for Nganu. Um, I, I have to imagine his team would have prepared him for that. And I, and I have to imagine that, that he's he's paid enough attention to the U.S. and the world, the sports in general, to know that when he spoke out, there was going to be a huge backlash from it. I mean, a lot, a lot of fighters said they've met him before. He's a really good guy. And I'm sure some of the veteran fighters have explained to him kind of the way things work in mixed martial arts and work in, in professional sports as a whole when it comes to things like this with certain athletes. So you said quite a bit there. Um, and I think what is most interesting about this is like, I don't... Mm, I really don't care what like like Sipe's position in this situation because I think that the story is about Nganu and about what his position is as an immigrant looking into this country and seeing what our our president is currently saying. And I think what's also important about this is if you look at the backlash that that came. Um, that came in Ganu's way so quickly. It's so ironic that this is on the same day where UFC President Dana White came out to defend Donald Trump, basically calling him a stand-up guy and talking about the quote-unquote friendship that he has with President Trump, especially since he's become uh, president of our country. Also, you know, for those who may not know, uh, Dana White spoke at the RNC during the um, election cycle of the last previous election cycle and the response was was no no avoid no response there um and i'm and you wonder why there's such a a quick um there's such a uh distinction between the two it's almost like you know engano is being told to shut up and just fight and speak to sports and and stick to sports but no one's having that same type of response for Dana White. Uh, I think I think that speaks for a lot of things, and I'm, this is something that I struggle with within mixed martial arts as well. And there was a great piece on Bloody Elbow, maybe about four or five months ago, by um, Cream Zidane. I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly, but he wrote a good piece about a lot of the over or the white nationalist undertones within mixed martial arts, and it's a great great piece. I, I, I suggest a lot of people go back and read it. And this is something that I struggle with because you still see it. And you see it across all professional sports in any way, shape, or form. But in mixed martial arts, you see it much more prevalent. Um, the the chance of USA anytime a foreign fighter is, is, is fighting. Uh, what was it, two years ago that the, that the UFC cut a fighter that had white nationalist tattoos on his chest? Um, the, the like the attitudes towards some foreign fighters and and Kobe Covington the Kobe Covington Conor, Conor McGregor Chael Sonnen Chael type of act you see this in, in MMA more per se I guess on a per capita basis than you see in other sports and I struggle with this being a minority male and this is this is my favorite sport but you still see it in such a wide swath that. I kind of I've been saying it for weeks. This is going to happen when it comes to Nganu, whether he wins the title or not. If he wins the title and he continues speaking out about social injustices, speaking about 
speaking out about what's going on in Africa, what's going on within the minority community that he sees within the United States, especially being a, a foreigner, the MMA fan base is going to turn on him and they're going to turn on him swiftly. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's like when I look at when I look at the issue, I look at it from every perspective. Because every position, whether you're a guy, you're white, you're black, you're Hispanic, you're an immigrant, you're an American, whatever, there's some there's there's some situation where maybe you're the majority, or you you've got the privilege, or you've got some advantage, and you're trying to get whatever job you want to have done, or compete in whatever competition. And you're getting this brought up because some some fighters really believe the same thing that that the fans believe. They're like, I just want to do my job. I want to win my NBA title. I want to win my UFC title. I don't want to be, I don't want to be brought into a political issue. I don't want to be brought into a racial issue. I just want to do my job and, and go about my life because this doesn't directly impact my life or because in the moment I'm currently winning and I don't want to risk whatever I've gained or I've accomplished being jeopardized because now I'm discussing this issue or because this issue is being brought to the forefront. You know, if you're, if you're in, but these issues were all bigger than any sport we're into, but there's fighters who believe that they don't, they don't want to be drawn into it. They just want to make their money, take care of their family and go about their business. And now what, what turns into a title fight or a NBA game is now a women's right or a, or a immigration's rights or racial issues. And they're just like, I, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. Now in Ghanu, wants to and Aganu was asked a direct question he has a right to speak about it and I think he should speak about it but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of fighters who don't want to be involved into it and that's not even counting the fighters who, who really have actual issues with minorities or even fighters of the fighters of the same nationality who d don't c come from a certain background you throw that in that's another factor but there's a lot of fighters who just don't want to deal with it a because they're either in a privileged position or b they just want to do their jobs and go home and um, anytime you deal with situations like that, you're you're opening you're opening a door that's really hard to close. And while that works for certain certain people, and and being a minority myself, I understand why that happens. For other people, they just they just rather pretend it doesn't exist and it doesn't happen and, and go about their business. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's a, it's an interesting conversation, man, because I think that um, I think that it's a narrative that can't be ignored, especially if he wins the. Uh, if he wins the title because you know he's going to continue drawing attention to it the thing that makes me really wonder is like you know you heard about in the nfl lockers locker rooms there was this you know there was kind of like a divide because you know certain people voted for certain people certain people don't want to discuss certain issues and certain people do and it's like you wonder in in, in in combat sports there's there's a big there's a wide spectrum of different types of people from different backgrounds with different ethnicities who were in the sport so it's like you wonder like in these camps like what the what the impression is you know what i mean like there's somebody who could be in a camp who you just know is a great fighter and a great guy this comes up and it's like you find out a different side of somebody that maybe you didn't think existed or you didn't have to deal with like you might have gone to the gym to get away from that and now it's being brought into the gym i think like you said there's a, there's a racial issue there's a social issue into it but i also think some people to it, this isn't Ganu's job, but for a lot of people, it's their escape. It's their uh, their fantasy world, and they don't like their fantasy world being interrupted with the real life issues they have to see, and or possibly deal with on a regular basis. And usually, once again, it's the people who have the advantage. But I think that's where a lot more of it comes from. People are like, "This is my break. Talking about the fight is is my escape. I don't want to hear about this stuff during the fight or during the game or." 
before the game or after the game. This is where I get my break and I get to do what I want and I get to live the life I want to live and not have to be concerned with these sort of things. Yeah, man. And uh, there was the last thing I'll say about it is there was an interesting, um, I think there's like a little blurb type, one of the little snippet pieces on, um, what was that website? I think MMA Junkie asking if Dana White has officially, not officially, but if he's kind of um, ostracized some fans and some fighters with his comments uh, supporting Trump. And it was it, looking at the conversation on Twitter. It was pretty interesting because people went back and forth, as they always will. And I, I just think it'll be an interesting conversation to kind of watch, watch uh, develop after this fight, especially if Ngana wins, because it's going to have to be something that they address. Because he's not going to, he's not going to not talk about it. Yep, that's true. Uh, if he loses, it could be interesting, depending on the reactions you get online and at the at the uh, stadium or the arena that night. It could, it could get ugly. This could get really ugly, depending on how this goes. Yeah, it can. I definitely agree. So let's continue going down the card, and we got Daniel Cormier and Volkan Uzdemir. Uh, what are your thoughts about this fight here? Uh, Volkan's kind of come out of nowhere, and and in three fights, kind of pushed his way into the main event picture and here you have Cormier who is 19 and 0 against everyone not named John Jones. What do you see in this co-main event fighting who do you think is coming out as the champion? I mean for all intents and purposes this should be any a fairly dominant performance from uh, from Cormier because outside of Volsimir scoring a knockout Nobody can really tell you a guaranteed way on how he beat Cormier. He, he's not going to submit him. He can't out-wrestle him. The main area he has is a striking advantage. But Cormier is, is good on the feet. He's competent on the feet. And he's pretty good. He's gotten a lot better at being able to diversify the striking game and the transition into the clinches and into the shots. So it seems across the board, Cormier has every possible advantage against uh, Ozemir. He's a better athlete. He's a more accomplished MMA fighter. He's got the more diverse and deep skill set. So this should be a fairly paint-by-the-numbers win. The the question is, how does he handle getting hit by a big shot? Can he walk through a big shot? Can he recover from a big shot? That's the only only clear chance that the challenger has to win, but we've already seen Cormier kind of get blasted with big shots and come back or get rocked or get his nose broken by big punchers or take a lot of abuse and have to fight through it. So in, from that perspective, he's already proven that he can handle a power puncher. He can already handle a high-level striker. He can handle a dynamic athlete. The question actually becomes is what do we, what, what can Usamir handle? We haven't seen him on his back really. We haven't seen him pressured really. We haven't seen him really taking a beating. We haven't seen him have to grind through four or five rounds of constant pressure, physicality, and punishment. So we don't know if he can deal with that. We, we have no idea what he can deal with. It's all kind of speculative sort of thing. So in, in general, as far as the skill and experience level, it, it's clearly in DC's, DC's favor. The only thing that makes me hesitate a little bit is Cormier is coming off a knockout loss, and it was a bad knockout to John Jones. And Cormier is getting older. I mean, his gas tank isn't what it used to be, and it wasn't even great when he started and his ability to take shots and recover from shots while still very good. It's not as good it's not as good as I think it should be and you never know when that chin or that durability, that ability to grind is gonna go away. 
he's had it, he's maintained it, but when you start getting past a certain age, your chin can go overnight. Your ability to push can go overnight. Your ability to recover can go overnight. And when you're facing a guy who's a known finisher, um, that has to that has to make you ask some questions about yourself and ask some questions about the direction the fight can go. But as far as actual like things we can point to and things we've seen, it, it's not really a close fight on paper at all. You know, niggas close. So, what does this look like for Cormier's legacy here? Um, if he gets the win, it's like okay, you continue defeating everybody, but you can't defeat. John Jones and this division really needs some help. What, do, what what would you suggest to him as his next steps if he's able to pull out the victory on Saturday? To be honest, I, I feel Cormier is under a lot of pressure. I want to say that because Cormier recently, the only person he's been able to, the people he's been able to, he's lost to, has been Jones. The very best guy, the apex predator, the guy who's been the best in division for the longest amount of time. If he loses to Uzumir, all any any goodwill he's built up, any reputation he's built up, disappears instantaneously. Because the biggest the, the biggest selling point with him is the only guy who's ever been able to beat him is John Jones, and nobody's pushed John Jones as hard as Daniel Cormier has. He loses his fight, and it's a huge shock to his his career. It's great for Uzumir, but it's terrible for him because he lost to a guy who who nobody thinks would beat John Jones first of all, and a guy who really hasn't who really hasn't done any consistent performances at this division. He beat up uh, Misha Serkinov. That's not, that's, that's a good win. It's not spectacular. He knocked out um, Jimmy Manuel. Who doesn't, anybody who can hit can knock out Jimmy Manuel. He's been knocked out by a lot of people. And he beat OSP. Once again, a very good, but not necessarily great fighter, much less great he light heavyweight. So his position currently now is the position it's always been in wrestling. He was always, he was essentially the second best in mixed martial arts. He's been, he was the second best heavyweight at AKA, and now he, he's the second best light heavyweight in the UFC. And that's been basically what's defined his career. He loses to Uzumir, and it's, it, it, to me, it damages his legacy beyond compare. He essentially has to not lose another fight to anybody other than Jones. That's what's allowed him to keep his cachet and allowed him to talk the way he talks and get pushed the way he gets pushed, because the only guy who has beaten him has been the best of all time, and a guy who um, a guy who he's pushed. So losing to anybody else, especially a guy who's as unproven, unproven as the challenger, it, it's a bad look for him, and I think it damages his brand a lot. Good analysis there, sir. Good analysis there. Um, let's look forward to, let's see who else we have on this card. You know, a lot on this card really didn't stand out to me. This is kind of, today was the first time I looked at the whole UFC 220 card. Um, let's talk about uh, Almeida versus Rob Font, though. This fight kind of popped out to me when I looked down the list really quickly. What are some of your thoughts about this bout here? Um, Almeida, Almeida's been a guy who's had a long career. He's not a long career. He's been a long combat sports guy. He's been a kickboxer for a long time. He kind of burst upon the scene as a fighter. He's a really dynamic striker. He's athletic. He's very good at range. He's good in the clinch. He sets a high pace. He's very physical. The problem with Almeida is early in fights, he tends to get hurt really early, really early. Early on, he can get, you can get to him. Early on, you can finish him. The later the fight goes, he finds his rhythm, he starts making adjustments, and he, his chin seems to improve. The longer the fight goes, his chin seems to get better. In every fight, when he's got rocked early, when he's made it through, the same shot that rocked him in round one doesn't seem to budge him in round three. But early on, he's very, very vulnerable. 
the question I have for Font, Font's a good fighter. He's a good counterpuncher. He's very accurate. He's he's well schooled. I think he's with Mark Delagrate. The problem is I don't know if he has the athleticism, and I don't know that he has the defensive awareness necessary to handle the offensive onslaught that Almeida's going to put out. Because if you're not a lights out hitter like Cody Garbrandt or someone of that caliber, then exchanging with Gar exchanging with Almeida is a very risky proposition unless you have either the chin. The chin to take it, the defense to avoid it and land your counters, or you're just such an offensive force yourself that you can blow him out of the water. I don't know that Rob Font hits that hard. I don't know that he's that good an offensive fighter, and I'm pretty sure, guaranteed sure, that he doesn't have the defense necessary to stay away from Almeida if Almeida ramps up the volume and aggression on him. So I think there's danger in it because Font can counter him, and Font is he's, he's sharp and efficient in how he throws his strikes. But the difference in athleticism and the difference in offensive creativity is what I think puts it in the favor of Almeida. Almeida's a much bigger hitter. To me, he's much faster. He's much more explosive. Their strength is probably comparable, and he's a better offensive fighter. And if you have two guys with okay defense and two guys with okay chins, I'm going to go with the guy who's the better offensive fighter and who's the more dynamic offensive fighter, which would be Thomas Almeida. Plus, he, he fought the better opposition. He's fought he's performed better against a better opposition. Okay, okay, okay. Good there, good there. What else from this event stands out to you? Because like I said, a lot on this card didn't catch my eye after looking down it today. But what else stands out for you on this event? I mean, I, I to be honest, uh, the main, the main, the main thing that got me with the cards was the, was the main events and the Thomas, the main and co-main, and the Thomas Almeida Almeida fight. And a lot of the reasons I'm going, the fights are so important to me is because once Stevie has a chance to break the record for the ch defending the title, which would essentially make him an all-time Hall of Famer, and if Ngannou wins, we're talking about possibly a new, a new era in heavyweight, in a in the heavyweight division. You know, it's like the when you start to go back to the you had the people who had the huge athletic advantage, and then it kind of leveled out, and now we're getting to the next phase of the heavyweights where you, you're seeing the super athletes again. In the case of um, Cormier and Ozemir, it's a matter of seeing the direction of the light heavyweight division as it moves on without John Jones. And that's a story in and of itself. And of course, Almeida. Almeida's been a blue chip prospect who they had big hopes for as far as being an elite fighter and title challenger. But across the board in the, in the fights, I, I didn't really see a lot that I was the you know that I was interested enough where I was going to really start picking through the card and, and breaking down fights. You know. Kind of like if somebody asked me about a fight, I have an opinion. Outside of that, I didn't, I didn't have a lot invested in this card. It's not a really deep card, and even though it's a, it's kind of a well-made made card as far as the matches, the quality of the matches, they, they're not the kind of fights that are going to excite people or draw a ton of interest. Okay, okay. So let's see, let's see, let's see. So let's see. Um, let's move up to well, you. Let's look at another card that's actually going on. Saturday as well. Uh, we have Bellator 192, where we have, in my opinion, the real main event is Rory McDonald versus uh, Douglas Lima. But on paper, the main event is the heavyweight tournament bout between Chell Sonnen and Quentin Rampage Jackson. So we got a couple of interesting fights here that jumped out to me that we should talk about. But um, let's start there. Jackson versus uh, Sonnen. What do you think about? Um, I think it'll be a better fight than most people expect. 
uh, the biggest issue with me is in that Chael Sonnen is just going to take, because Rampage has never been the best defensive wrestler in the world, even though he comes from a wrestling background originally. He's never been the best defensive wrestler, and a lot of guys have taken him down. Uh, King Mo took him down. Ryan Bader took him down. Um, I forgot the uh, Japanese fighter they had. I think he was a judoka. He took, he took him down repeatedly in a, at the prior Bellator event. So defensive wrestling and defensive grappling has never been two of his biggest strengths in the world. He, he's consistently been put, put on his back by guys his size, guys smaller, guys less physically imposing than him. Um, the thing about it is Chel Sonnen isn't in his prime anymore. He, he, he's later in his he's later stage of his career. And as good as he is as a wrestler, the fact of the matter is when he fought Vanderlei, Vanderlei had moments. He defended a couple takedowns. He got back up in a couple takedowns. He was able to score on the feet a couple times and really put um, Chael in some trouble. And, and Vanderlei has never been a great defensive wrestler by any means. And him and Vanderlei are a little bit closer in size and physical strength than him and um, Rampage Jackson. Basically what I feel the fight's gonna come down to is Rampage's conditioning. If he's in good enough shape, then he's gonna be able to, he'll get up from a couple takedowns, he'll defend a couple of them, he'll land shots and he'll put Chael Sonnen away. If he's not in shape, then after an initial burst, he's gonna start slowing down and Chael's just gonna chip away at him, take him down and then just work him over and control him for a decision win. It's all in that which shape Quinnen comes into. If he comes in in good shape and he's prepared to kind of push the pace and counter aggressively and get in those tie-ups and make um, sun and pay with knees and short punches, he can, he can probably put him away within a round. But if he's not in good enough shape, and he gasses quick, or he has one explosive moment, and that's it, that's, that's all he's prepared for, then Chel Sonnen will just walk him down and win a decision based off control itself. So this is a three-round fight there. How do you think that will kind of play out in this situation? Uh, say it again? This is a three-round fight. So how do you think that that will play out in the uh, in the outcome? Uh, it, uh, I mean, a five-round fight would be really risque, but... I saw, I've seen Rampage get tired in three-round fights before. He got tired years ago against Bader. He got tired against King Mo. He got tired in the fight before King Mo because the guy just leaned on him and tied him up and forced him to get take, forced him to defend takedowns. And all that extra grappling-heavy attack kind of wore him down. Rampage has never been in the best condition. He's never been a, the, one of the best condition fighters in the history of mixed martial arts. We can all agree on that. So I don't know the three rounds or five rounds really makes a difference. He's a, he's a skilled enough, he's a tough enough veteran, and Chael's not a big submission threat, nor is Chael a big striking threat. So whether we went three rounds or five rounds, I feel Rampage is just on savvy and toughness alone to make it the distance. Um, I, I, feel like, I feel like he's going to get tired either way. And um, the five round just gives, gives um, Sonnen more of an opportunity to wear him down. But I, I think after a round and a half, if the fight goes at any sort of pace, I think um, I think Rampage is going to be slowing down regardless. Like I said, he got tired in the last two, three-round fight, and he's going to be in just as many wrestling changes as he was in either one of those two prior. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously I really don't want to talk too much about this fight because I'm not interested in the heavyweight Grand Prix at all. But I mean, I think that this is this is you know, these two guys are their icons in the sport for just what they've done for so long, so I think it does have some appeal. I don't agree that it's the main event. I think that they made a mistake in switching the order, and that shows a lack of trust in 
uh, Lima and McDonald. But I also understand, you know, this is a business. They got to do what they got to do to kind of make as much money as they possibly can. I mean, is it really a lack of trust, though? I mean, I, I probably compare the, the, the car's Sonnen's headline and the ratings to what Lima's headline. I'm pretty sure the ratings are in Sonnen's favor. And the same goes for Rory and the same goes for Lima and, and Rampage Jackson. I mean, the main the fact of the matter is when you're going on TV, you need ratings. You need to draw eyes because they, you know, to help push your brand forward. And as good a fight as Lima and McDonald is, it's not a sexy fight, not the casual, not the people who don't really know the sport. And you want to get as many people to watch this as possible. What sells better, Lima versus McDonald, or Jackson versus Sonnet, or Rampage versus Sonnet? I mean, once again, those guys have done the extra work over the length of their career to make themselves into stars. I'm not saying Lima hasn't, I don't know enough about him, but I know Rory McDonald has made an impression as far as how he appeals to not just hardcore fans, but casual fans. And at the end of the day, if you don't make money, you can't keep the lights on. You can't keep the lights on, you can't keep the fighters employed. And that's that's the, the end goal for everybody at the end of the day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely, again, good points there. Uh, let's talk about the co-main event there, though. Um, we have the one and only um, Roy McDonald, the Red King, facing off against uh, Douglas Lima. Lima, who's continued to look better. Ever since that defeat at the hands of Ben Askren, I think he also on Andre Korskov there too as well. But what are your thoughts about this welterweight fight here, man? How important is is this the most important welterweight fight that's gone on in a while? And what are your thoughts about this event here? This main this this co-main event. How do you see how do you see it going down? Uh, this is probably the uh, the biggest the biggest probably most important welterweight fight in the history of Bellator. Just because even though even though Rory wasn't Consider maybe a top three or top five guy. He was probably a top five, top seven guy when he left the UFC. So this is Bellator's best opportunity to see how their fighter stacks up against an elite guy from another organization. They haven't had that very often. I mean, Vincent Henderson came over, but he was a lightweight, moving up, facing a guy who had a huge, a huge weight advantage over him. In this instance, you're getting to see a guy who's known not for his physical advantages and his pace and his strategy, but a guy who's known for his cage IQ, a guy who's known for his technical skills, and a guy who's also known for his, um, who's known for having the camp. It really has a game plan and a strategy that's allowed him to compete and beat some of the best fighters in mixed martial arts right now. I mean, he has went over the UFC welterweight champion. So this is Bellator's chance to really see one of their homegrown talents show that they really are elite and they really can stand in the class of the UFC champions. Everybody always says it, but rarely do they get a fighter who's ranked high enough still close enough to the prime of his career where they have a chance to prove that. And this is their first opportunity to do so. Um, was it, is, is McDonald the last guy to beat Woodley? I believe he is, correct? Uh, if I could, yep, he was the last guy and beat him. He didn't knock him out, but he beat him very decisively. Yeah, that's that's definitely some interesting there. Like he's the last guy to get that win. So I'm really interested in, in this fight here, especially because of the way Lima has continued to improve in the past few years. Um, I'm looking for because. I don't think we'll. I think we'll see him along the same lines as Michael Chandler, meaning we'll never see him in the 
UFC, but I think that he is uh, continuously showing that he is one of the best in the sport, and I and I love seeing him. Like you know, he he stopped, uh, he defeated Lorenz Larkin. He had that great win there. I think this is another opportunity for him to get a very big win and prove that he's amongst the elite. Oh, excuse me, amongst the elites within this division in this sport. So I'm definitely looking forward to this fight here. What about Michael Chandler? Um, he is fighting. Go to. Oh, before, before we get into Michael Chandler, I just want to say, um, from a, and from a, from a just a technical aspect, my biggest concern with this fight is how much damage can Rory McDonald take? I think he has the size, I think he has the skills and the balance of skills to beat Lima. Lima is a very dynamic, offensive guy. He's very big, he's physically punishing, and he hits very hard, and he takes a good shot. The biggest question we have about Rory is what kind of punishment can he take? If he gets hit on the nose again, can he, will he fight defensively? Will he still fight with the same aggression and, and, and work rate and physicality necessary to win the fight? Because we saw when he got his nose damaged again again, and he get damaged against uh, Lawler that ended up with him getting stopped when he got damaged against Thompson. Once his nose got damaged, his aggression and his consistency kind of drifted off against Thompson. So a big question we have for Rory is, what can he take? What can he do? We haven't seen him take any sort of abuse. He didn't take any against um, Paul Daly. So that's the biggest question. As far as the technical field set, I think he can walk He can walk Lima down. But, but Lima's biggest advantage is we know Lima can take a lot of punishment. We know Lima can fight it at a high pace for an extended period of time taking punishment. We have no idea what Rory can take. And if Rory can, if Rory can take the abuse, because he's going to get hit, He's going to get hit often. If he can take it, then I feel that he's going to win, most likely by submission. If he can, in fact, not take it, then this fight doesn't, get, this fight doesn't probably get it outside of three rounds. Because Lima is that good offensively. And due to his durability and his physicality, he's more than, he's more than able to consistently counter very heavily and very effectively. So the question is, if he draws it and gets to an extended exchange with McDonald, will McDonald's body hold up? Will his nose hold up? Will his conditioning hold up under duress? Or will McDonald be able to essentially take away everything that Lima does as far as initiating offense, creating exchanges, and getting into positions where his physicality and his offensive diversity can take over the fight? If Rory can play his game and survive the spots where Lima turns it on, then Rory's going to win going away. If Rory can't take the punishment, Lima's a pretty good finisher, and he, and he will put him away um, inside the distance. Yeah, I'm definitely going to agree with you there on um, that breakdown as well. So let's move on to Michael Chandler. I mean, we, he's fighting Gosu Yamu, uh, Yamushi, and he's going on record today and said that he doesn't want, he doesn't care about the about the Bellator title anymore. He just wants big money fights. Now, from a Bellator standpoint, I feel like Chandler has the clout to make that statement. I mean, he's been there. He's been their money maker for so long. They put so much money behind this guy over the years here. What do you think is uh, going to happen in, in this fight here? And what do you kind of see happening for Chandler? I think, again, just like Lima, I don't think we're ever going to see him in the uh, UFC. I think that he's going to be someone to um, that kind of fights out his career in Bellator, it definitely stays one of their like marquee guys, and maybe even takes like a leadership position when he is done fighting. Uh, my my question: I know you said he's a money maker, but is he really a money maker? I know he's been probably one of their best fighters, if not their best fighter. But I don't know that Michael Chandler generates a whole lot of money. 
as far as like ratings and fans and stuff like that. I know he he had a streak where he's very popular, but I mean I don't know that he's any more money maker than Tito Ortiz was or Chael Sonnen is or or Kimbo Slice rest in peace was. I mean, is he really a money maker? Because he's asking for money, big money fights essentially. And if he was the money maker, wouldn't he be the big money fight? I feel like in in some ways, I feel like he is maybe for the UFC. I'm mean, excuse me for Bellator. He may not be a big money maker for like a um in comparison to a Tito, in comparison to a X, Y, and Z. But he's I mean he he must be doing something right because they continuously put money behind him to um keep him around. Well, I mean I get that, but it's kind of like. He says he wants big fights, but the biggest fight there would be would be him as a champion. I don't know who, I mean, unless he wants to fight whoever the winner of Lima and and um, McDonald's, but the only way that fight becomes like a big, like any sort of fight with real interest that like kind of maybe crosses over is if McDonald wins, because McDonald would be a, a former title challenger in UFC who won a title in Bellator. And, and that, I can see that having some kind of cachet to it, but him just fighting the Bellator welterweight champion, I don't know if that's a really that's a really big fight as far as like popularity and notoriety among casual fans and hardcores. A fight with him and Vincent Henderson would had more cachet than a fight with him and Douglas Lima. A fight with him and Rory McDonald, you can do something with. That's that's the fight that might sell. But a fight with him and Douglas Lima. I don't know, man. I don't know if that's the feeling that you might think it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to be an interesting outcome here because I, I, I agree with you. Him as champion is probably best. Um, it's probably the best, but I don't think – I think he also is saying this. to kind of take shots at Brett Primus because, you know, he's been saying Primus is like the paper champion. He's not the real champion because of the way he won the fight or he won the uh, – title, so I think this is a way for him to kind of continue taking shots at, at him. And I do agree with you. I think him being champion is kind of best for the organization just because he's been there for so long, and he's a face that the people recognize. Michael Chandler is a name that they recognize each and every day, so I, I, I agree with you there. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's, and I hate to bring this up, but it's the same problem we always have when we discuss Bellator. They're so shallow in each division. There's only so many directions you can go. There's only so many matchups you can have. And once you have those, you don't really have anything else to leverage with people except to offer them more money. That's what they did with Eddie Alvarez. They offered him more money, but at some point he knew that if he could get the right fight in the UFC, he could make more money. His brand would expand. And for some guys, it didn't work. It didn't work for Hector Lombard. But look what it did for Eddie Alvarez. The fight with Conor McGregor and the fight with um, Justin Gacy pretty much legitimized his decision to leave because both of those fights had huge had a huge um, watch people amounts of people watching it and they helped expand his brand to people who weren't previously familiar or maybe uh, supportive of what he had or what he had to offer as a fighter yeah I'm definitely going to agree with you there on that there too and man who in Bellator can do that for um for Chandler I mean Chandler's the star so what you know what I mean like he's, he's like you said he's the guy who who brings the money and brings the attention. So who's he going to go to create that? Who's going to bring the equal amount to the table that he has? Man, I hope they groom Aaron Pico for that that situation. But, you know, he's fighting at featherweight. But, I mean, that, that's, that's never stopped them um, at all. So 
like let's see what happens from that. You know, Aaron Pico is also fighting. He's fighting uh, Alex McCutcheon. I, I can't think of the guy. Uh, I can't think of Christian's first name, but he's fighting him uh, in his third fight, hoping to get on on the winning side and keep erasing that first round defeat out of everyone's mind when um, thinking about him. So uh, Pico's fighting. We got Corrales and uh, Georgie Karakanian. I'm interested in seeing Hoist Gracie's son fight as, as well, too. Like, so there are some intriguing bits and pieces on this Bellator card. What kind of stands out for you there? Yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're interesting fights, but they're fights right now that it's like, if it, depending on how these careers go in a year, two years, three years, we might look back and say, you know what, look, that that was the point. This person got his start, and this was, was the first step. Right now, a lot of these fights are basically uh, prospect fights where you're trying to develop fan bases. You're trying to build interest. You're trying to get these guys started so that they can hopefully get on a run and turn into a, a Caldwell or turn into a Michael Chandler. That, that's, that's where that's the stage you're at right now. So it's like, it's very, it's very hard to gauge the quality of the fight. It's very hard to, in some instances, um, break down the fights because these guys are at such formative stages of their career. They don't, they don't even really have their identities established as much. And the other fights where you have the fighters who are known quantities, once again, these are fighters who haven't managed to excel within this organization with themselves. So they are not, maybe not elite fighters, or there's questions of whether they compete where they compete in the UFC, where the elite fighters go. The reason these fights we're mentioning, the Rory McDonald and Michael Chandler, the reason they get so much attention is because these guys have proven that they can compete in the biggest, on the big, in the biggest organization at the highest level. Even Chael Sonnen and Rampage, at some point, were able to compete in the biggest organization at the highest level. That's what allows them to sell this point. Even though Bellator is an entity unto itself, they're using the UFC to help sell their product and help legitimize their fighters. Like, oh, Michael Chandler could compete in the UFC's lightweight division. That's been something they've said before. Um, Rory McDonald, how do they justify him getting a title shot? He was an elite competitor in the UFC. When Musasi came in, why they can't, how did they justify pushing him? He was an elite fighter in the UFC. So these other guys haven't had that history and they haven't had that consistency in their career at that level. And that's why it makes it hard to, A, break down their fights because there's not as much footage or you don't have a proper gauge to gauge the talent and the ability and B, the other fighters who have some sort of consistency have shown themselves to not be elite so the interest in those fights kind of falls off a little bit because you want to see the best fighters and the and the best fighters in Bellator are like basically fighters five through seven yeah yeah I, I, I mean I totally agree with you. it does make analyzing these fights a little bit more difficult but um I, I think that they're kind of they're, 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 that they're interesting and thankfully the way that the fight card is, is playing out, we can catch the co-main event and the main event before Bellator's, uh, or excuse me, before the UFC co-main event and main event. Are you planning on watching both events? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I was definitely planning on watching the, the Bellator. I mean, I, I'm just one of those, I'm an MMA fan, so I'll watch some bad fights. I'll watch some sideshow fights because, you know, I mean, MMA to a large degree is kind of a sideshow sport if you really think about it. But, um... That welterweight fight, that that might be the best welterweight fight that's been made in, in the past couple of years. I mean, that I hate to say it because it just proves my point, but that, that's a UFC quality fight. You know, if Lima can beat McDonald and beat him decisively, 
that says something. Whatever you can say about maybe McDonald lost a step or whatever, the fact of the matter is Bellator's champion would have done what the UFC champion could not do. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that makes a statement. That matters. So this is it's, it's a very important fight for the Bellator division, but it's just a very important fight for welterweights as a whole because these are two guys who are not in the UFC but really are top ten lightweight type top ten welterweights in their own in their own right. So I was gonna watch that fight regardless. Okay, good to know. Good to know. So um, <clears throat> what are you working on this week for uh, your outlets, man? What uh, what do you have in the queue? Um, I'm pro- I'm working on a right now. I'm working on an article for uh, for MMA ratings. It's gonna be over uh, Justine Kish's a fight. She's gonna be uh, be fighting on a UFC fight night fight night card on uh, the 27th, and uh, she's moving up to flyweight. So I'm kind of doing a, a fight that a card. Uh, excuse me, an article. Can't talk today. It addresses the good, the bad, and the ugly of her skill sets, whether it's physical or technical, and addresses the good and the bad and the ugly of her moving up the flyweight as far as like she had these advantages at this weight class how's it going to translate to this weight class her technical skills in this area or her lack of technical skills impacted her this way at this class how is it going to impact her at this class and it's just kind of looking at the uh the move to the new weight and how that's going to impact how she fights in her success in fighting world-class opposition at a heavier weight So, um, and what do you have coming up? You said that's for ratings this week? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. I'm looking forward to your work, man. You're definitely getting some good stuff out there, and we really appreciate it. Um, as always, you know, I'm covering just about everything that I can. I've got some grappling events coming up this weekend I'm going to cover, and um, I'll be looking forward to the fights to kind of cover those as well, too. So be sure to catch my content. You can catch me at rgarcia underscore sports. Um, Schwan, let him know yeah, where. One thing, one thing I have to give you credit on. Everybody says they're a fan of re- grappling, but very few people actually like cover it on their uh, on their own for their own articles or for other websites. You're one of the few people who actually like. I'm a fan of grappling, and I pushed that narrative, and I pushed the sport forward with as much attention or bigging up the the competitors or the organizations as much as possible. Because everybody's like, oh, I love grappling, but you never see them do articles specifically on the combat sport or the art of grappling. So I commend you for not just speaking that you have love and support for something, but actually showing your love and support or putting your time, your effort into writing pieces for a combat sport that hasn't that has a has a fan base, but probably doesn't have as big one big of a paying fan base as boxing or mixed martial arts. A lot of guys won't put their work on put their work on the line like that. You you might take less clicks to build that fan, that grassroots interest in, in, your, in the sport you love. And a lot of guys aren't willing to take that risk. They're only going to write about certain fighters, certain events, certain articles, because that's what's going to get them the most clicks. But you put your money where your mouth is, and you support. You don't just ask people to support grappling. You're one of those people out in the forefront supporting grappling. Yeah, definitely, man. I can appreciate that. Thank you for that. Because, um, I mean, it's always some hard work. So, um, But, yeah, man, just another day, another dollar. You know, we're sitting here doing the, uh, doing the damn thing. So... It is what it is, man. Um, but yeah, with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and close the show out. It's been a good one, a uh, good back and forth conversation. So we'll be back next week to continue doing what we're doing, man. And uh, I look forward to talking to you then. Yeah, definitely, man. You, you stay easy, try not to work too much. I mean, I'm just talking to a wall at this point. Just talking to a wall, yep. I'm going to keep on saying it. I'm going to keep on saying it until one of these days you drop one of those 15 jobs you have. I need to, I need to have 13 jobs. Drop from 15 to 13. That's all I ask. That'll be the goal one day, man. I appreciate you. All right, man. You take it easy.
Have a good one.